The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Kevin Hancock, president of Hancock Lumber Company, and also an award-winning author of Not for Sale, Finding Center in the Land of Crazy Horse. Uh, Kevin Hancock, who is the president of Hancock Lumber Company, which was established in 1848 and operates 10 retail stores and three sawmills that are led by 460 employees. The company also grows trees on 12,000 acres of timberland in southern Maine. Um, Kevin was a very highly successful businessman and, and still is because I don't know if I mentioned, but the company is one of the largest in the United States, or one of the oldest in the United States, and also one of the largest in Maine. But then he was the one to steer it out of the financial strains of the recession. And with these hundreds of employees... He had a tremendous responsibility on his shoulders. He was also a community leader, a devoted husband, family man, and coach for his daughter's sports teams. He was the one who took care of everything and solved problems for everyone. And then suddenly he lost the consistent and comfortable use of his voice to a relatively rare condition called spasmonic dysphoria. And this is where his story begins. Uh, Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Kevin. Thank you, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for well, having I could me. Well, I could, you know, there are a lot more accolades I could read about you and your business as president of your company. Um, but I guess the, the real crux of it is here you are, you're this guy who takes care of everything, whether it's in business or at home, and then suddenly you literally lose your voice. So what happens next? Well, at the time, that that was a really good question. I had no idea. Yeah. So in 2010, I acquired spasmodic dysphonia, which is a rare neurological voice disorder that I'd never heard of that um, can make speaking very difficult at times. My voice can get very weak and broken and hard to hear, and uh, I get dizzy and out of breath and sore, and it makes me at times not want to say very much. So it was uh, a real challenge to think about leadership or management without the consistent use of one's voice, but it turned out to be a, um, a blessing I didn't see coming. Well, what happened exactly? How do you, I guess I want to know in terms of like your diagnosis, like how did it happen? I mean, is it, it, is it caused by a virus? Is it, what, what's the, you know, in terms of how you contracted this, I guess, condition, how does that happen? It's a really interesting disorder um, affecting perhaps no more than 25,000 people in all of North America with uh, clinically no known cause and no known cure. Uh, Commonly 
coming on um, in people's 40s around around midlife. I um, so the medical community will say there's no known cause. I think, and my book is uh, very much about that. Um, it was my soul's way of getting my attention, getting me to stop and think and look inward and to do some things differently. So what kinds of things, you know, that whole mind-body connection, because it's all connected, the mind and the body, obviously, and that's uh, a lot of what your book is about. But um, so what were you doing? Why, you know, what was, obviously you, were, you, you thought you were doing everything, it sounds like, and, you know, you thought you were doing everything right. Here you are, you are everyone's hero, or, and you're you're the one who, you're the go-to person, so all of a sudden, um, when you start, you lose your voice. Um, what you know? What was going on in your mind? Like, what am I doing wrong? You know, why is this yeah, happening? Right now, yeah. on the surface, there was absolutely nothing wrong with what I was doing. I was leading in in what what we would, I think, most people would consider a very traditional uh, way. Uh, but the, the the voice disorder caused caused me to think differently about uh, leadership, how I led, and to think differently about um, who I was, the essence of who I was, and to see myself outside of my roles and responsibilities and and to just stop and and take a look at who I was uh, stripped of all those roles. With with respect to leadership on the management side, it, it got quite simple. When you can't always talk you listen, it's, the, <laughs> it's kind of the only natural reaction one can make. You get, I got really, really good in a hurry at listening uh, more deeply and authentically to people, not just to prepare my answer, but um, to listen and hear them. I got really good at asking questions, answering a question with a question, because I knew I wasn't going to be able possibly to talk for an extended period of time, and I got really good at sharing the stage and essentially inviting everyone around me to lead. And it didn't take very long to look at how that was going to realize that that was a much uh, stronger, more dynamic, powerful way to lead an organization anyway. Plus, it ended up giving me, for the first time in a long time, a little bit more time to serve myself and to strengthen myself outside of my roles. But I'm thinking about initially when this happens. I mean, obviously, as you say, it turned out to be a very positive thing for you, and you began to look at yourself in a different way, and I assume obviously other people did as well, but always in the beginning, you know, as a social worker, I'm always interested in, and I think other people are too, in your story, but when it first happens to you, because I'm thinking of you, I'm listening to all of these, we're listening to the RNC and the DNC and the convention, and it's all about people's voice, how they present themselves, and how powerful they appear, and I say the word appear, but um, so here you are in a similar kind of position with family and friends, and then all of a sudden you can't speak. And yes, you're listening and you're getting more internalizing, as you say, 
um, a lot more things than you were able to do before. But initially, what, how did you feel? I mean, like, what's you know, what? How did you um, see yourself? Because boy, that's a, a one eighty uh, that you had. Yeah, to initially do. it really scared me because I I wondered whether or not I could actually continue to do my job, whether or not I would have to. Uh, essentially become disabled or uh, from from being able to do that kind of job i didn't i didn't know what would happen and i also um just tried to kind of bull my way through you know and just push my voice and force things which um which does not work with spasmodic dysphonia. The harder you fight your voice, the worse it gets and I had to learn to um, reinvent the way I lead, and I had to learn to to kind of go with the flow, which was a bit of a um, not a normal instinct for me. Yeah, that uh, it was. That's not who you, or at least at that time, that's not who you were. Also, what about people? And I want to just kind of reiterate because here you are, and I didn't even say this in the beginning, but you are a multi-year recipient, or your business is Hancock Lumber of the Best Places to Work in Maine Award. Amongst you've gotten the Governor's Award. I mean. All kinds of awards for yourself individually and for your business. So, I mean, it really obviously did have to be a blow to you. What about how other people viewed you in the beginning? Because if you're the go-to guy, you're the you know you're the one who has everything to say. You're going to fix everything. You're the savior, and then suddenly you can't talk. Like, yeah, no, it was an adjustment <laughs> for people. It, it but um, but I think once. Once I kind of once I kind of came to see the the philosophical change and lived it consistently and talked to people about it, everybody really embraced it because everyone everyone could see the the power of it. I mean, the basic notion I came to to see was that the 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 partial loss of of my voice, which I felt initially was only a hindrance or a problem, was actually a blessing and an opportunity and a calling to strengthen the voices of others. And I said to myself um, a year or two into having spasmodic dysphonia, what if we could create an organization where everybody led, where everybody on the team felt like their voice was important, valuable, powerful, respected, and heard? Wouldn't an organization where everybody led outperform an organization where just a few people held all the cards. And wouldn't it be more meaningful on a human level uh, as well to the people that work there? And the answers to me are a resounding uh, yes, which is why I'm, I've become thankful for the disorder I acquired because I don't know if I would have um, seen those things or learned those lessons without the the push that it gave me. So how did you implement it? Okay, you have the idea, let's let everybody lead. That's going to be a, a better thing for me, for, for all of us, which eventually, I guess, and business-wise, it did. You, you did more business than ever after you implemented this, the, the, the theory that you're talking about, letting everybody lead. Um, how did you begin to implement that? What happened? Yeah, so we, got, we actually got very disciplined about it, and it's the notion of looking at human resources or employee engagement as uh, uh, more of a, a, a discipline where you're specific and intentional about what you do. So for us, we uh, set up and, and have been working with, for over half a decade, a, a system that involves uh, annual employee 
surveys, third-party surveys, uh, focus groups, huddles, feedback mechanisms designed consistently to make everyone's voice in the organization stronger. And over time, uh, those systems take hold and everybody on the team comes to realize that that is authentically how the company uh, wants itself to be wired and people believe in it and they buy in and they um, open up more with what they think and what they see. What kind of resistance did you get, if any? I'm sure you must have gotten some. You have a lot of employees who aren't used to this 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 kind of uh, you know business. Uh, I guess you know running the business in this way. So, what kinds of feedback would you get initially? Because people do tend to. I think there is a tendency to want to be led. Tell us what to do, and we'll do it, and we'll do it well. But we don't want to think about it, and we don't necessarily. I mean, some, you know, we don't necessarily want to have input. So, any kinds of you know pullback feedback that you got that hey, this isn't going to work for me. And then, how did you handle that? Yeah, initially uh, it was more, I think, skepticism where, where people, it was new and different and not what anybody was, was used to. And I think people held back for a while to make sure that this approach was something that was going to stick. But once they saw that, I think people really started opening up. And what I've, uh, what I've really um, championed and come to believe in with our managers and supervisors is that the key to uh, creating a culture like that where, where, um, where everybody's willing to say what they think is supervisors and managers have to um, show real restraint in not judging people's responses. And I've tried to really turn around uh, the purpose of listening. It's not to correct or change someone's view. It's simply to understand at that moment in time how that person in that job at that point in their life sees that situation. And it doesn't need to be corrected or re-explained or um, fixed. You know, you can just let, just letting people feel that it's safe to say what they think is really, really powerful. And the voice of the organization is the um, symphony of everybody's perspectives. But what typically happens in in a lot of organizational structures is there's a lot of um, kind of hidden pressure that encourages people to not say what they think or just keep their head down. And I think the most powerful thing that an organization could do is create a culture where people would actually say what they think. So you lost your single voice, and then it, you gave that voice to a whole lot of other people. Uh, it gave, and as you say, the whole corporate culture uh, t- completely changed. Can you give us like an, give us an example of that? Like a, you know, obviously with not telling us specifically who it is, but like a situation um, that you just described where you do, like somebody, an employee, has something to say and you do need to listen to it. And what kind of really specific circumstances um, would that be and, and how did that work out, you know, well for your company? Right. Well, it, well, it happens. Um, it, it happens 
it gets to the point, sorry, where, where that, that kind of activity just happens daily everywhere, and it's just a lot of small things. Uh, one example is I now will go into meetings um, with people I'm supervising or other managers I'm working with with a blank sheet of paper. So the agenda I now typically bring to a meeting as a CEO is actually an empty sheet of paper because I want to know first what's on that person's mind. <clears throat> Two or three pages back in my notebook, I might definitely have a list of topics that are on my mind, but I find if, um, if I park them, the person I'm working with will actually hit those topics on their own, and when the person I'm working with hits those topics on their own, it's much more powerful than if I'm initiating it. So to, to, to me, kind of the key uh, example is, is leadership restraint. And having the power to set the agenda or to do the talking, but not using it. And, and my book, in a number of different settings, explores the notion that across time, um, in business, government, church, family, that those who have held the most power have often overreached. They've gone too far. And you can see examples of that. <laughs> everywhere you look, and that in the Aquarian age, uh, a new framework of leadership is required, and it's built around restraint, which is having the power, but not using it. All right. uh, I think that's uh, a timely, uh, if we can talk about it in terms of, you mentioned government. Give us an example, maybe examples in the book of where that happens, where we, where it would have been better to use restraint rather than to, you know, take over and, uh, you know, the the powerful kind of leader that we've been used to, you know, having, we need to change that. Yeah. So my my book, um, well, my book end up ends up chronicling a series of uh, trips I took back and forth from Maine to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, which is the the largest, poorest, most historic of all the Sioux reservations on the Northern Plains. And if you look back at um, America's Manifest Destiny period in the second half of the 19th century when our Western expansion ran into the Plains Indians, what happened next would be a good example. The country moving westward had the power to overrun all of the native tribes and take all their land and all their rights and sequester them on reservations, and we did it. And yet if you go out there today to the land the Sioux used to own by treaty, uh, there's nobody living there. The most, the most common thing you see if you drive um, over former tribal lands is that land is empty. You won't see a house. You won't see a car. You won't see a person. You might not even see um, a cow. And we overreached. We felt at that point in our history that there was not room for everyone, but there was room for everyone geographically, just not um, culturally or spiritually. And overreaching has consequences. So you look at the challenges of those uh, reservations in the modern day, 120 years later, and, and nobody won. You know, we didn't, we, the dominant culture didn't win by, destro- by 
taking them down, and, and they certainly didn't win uh, from that outcome either. That in the end, when you overreach, it, it pretty uh, typically will eventually um, fold, fold and deconstruct itself uh, back upon you because it's not, the overreaching is not sustainable. So, oh, this, all right, so what, now, but you go back, as we talked a little bit before the show, and it's, obviously it's, that's what your book is about, but you go back, what was your first thing, you, go, you went back to the, uh, the reservation, and, but, and nobody's there, but somebody must have been there. What did you find? Because you, you go back and forth, what, several times a year to sort of to get inspired and, and, and rejuvenated it almost. Yeah, I know. So, and just yeah. to be clear, when I say nobody's there on the uh, on the reservation on the reservation at Pine Ridge where people live, yeah. the people are there. If are you there. leave the reservation and drive on to the land that, that mm-hmm. they used to own, but we took from them, the most common thing you will see that it is empty. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. Your experience in first in the first time that you went there. Yeah, so I first went there in uh, October of 2012, somewhat fortuitously, um, really searching, um, searching for my own voice. The economy had stabilized. I could see our company was doing better. I had a growing sense that I needed to serve myself a little bit more. Uh, try to regain my own balance, if you will, and search for my voice. And um, Pine Ridge became a a place where where I could do that. Nobody really knew me there, and I had no responsibility there. And I just um, had always been a lover of American history, the American West, and um, took one somewhat random trip there, but but ended up feeling a, a really, really deep connection with the people, the place, and the story, and kept um, kept going back. So... It's interesting. Each time that you go back, I would assume something different occurs. You keep going back, and I think you did mention sometimes you think, well, maybe I don't need to go back, but every time you go back, you go and you get something new from the experience. Yeah, I do, and, it, and Pine Ridge for me has primarily uh, become a place where I can go and be still and quiet and serve myself. And I talk to my friends at Pine Ridge about this all the time because they're used to having people from away come there to fix them or change them or do their <laughs> civic duty. And while, um, while I like to do things to help them, I, I've actually gone out of my way to explain to them that I go there because what they have there helps me. There's a... Um, it's a place and a people and a set of values that has really given me strength. And I think it's important for them to know that, um, that who they are can, and what they're about can be of value to others. What about, and, and when you go, are you, do you, I guess what your family, we haven't really spoken too much about your family because you were also a, putting it in quotes, but you know, a leader and uh, somebody who took charge of your own family uh, in the same way that you did in your business. How has all of this affected your family and your relationship with your family? Because you, it seems to me we have a very different way of integrating yourself in your own relationships with, with, with your immediate family. Right. I ended up, um, great, great question. I ended up dedicating my, my book to my wife, Allison, because her, <laughs> um, 
her support, her kind of intuitive reaction to support my enthusiasm for traveling there was what allowed me to keep going. I don't know that I would have kept going if um, if she hadn't been so supportive. And, and so my family really saw, I think, that um, this was something that was benefiting me. And then I just think, you know, back home, everybody who has seen me kind of relax a little bit and flow more and um, engage the world a, a bit more calmly and peacefully, that everybody has benefited from that. Not, again, that there was anything wrong with who I was prior to, but it just um, allowed some natural growth and evolution to occur. And my book also really deals with um, with that notion that um, that we all come from a tribe. We're all born into a house on a street in a culture at a moment in time, and that tribe pulls on us to act a certain way and to do certain things, but that each soul is actually here to individuate and to find their own true voice and live it and express it, which is much easier said than done. Do you think, Kevin, we have to all go, or we should, to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation to be able to do this? <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I have said I might be the only person who would go there to do this. What, what, uh, the way I've phrased it, Catherine, is um, what's your Pine Ridge? That everyone should stop and think about um, where is that place or that activity uh, that, that allows you to to most be you, feel you, explore the essence of who you are, take strength, feel alive, that which, that which really ignites you, that you need to be on the lookout for that, that you shouldn't um, sacrifice or justify that out of your life, that you actually should be doing the opposite of it. You should be searching for it because when we uh, serve ourselves, we strengthen ourselves, and that is when we inevitably end up giving the most back to those around us. It's doing what makes you feel most alive that will, in turn, um, just light up the world around you. you know, it seems to me, and it was true also in your case, why do we always have to wait till there's a crisis? Why did you have to wait until you actually lost your voice, literally almost? Uh, to do something about it. I mean, does that have to be a motivating factor, or can we, you know, do it beforehand, or can we evolve into doing exactly what you've done in a very healthy way without having to wait for the crisis to occur? That's a wonderfully powerful question. I've never been asked that question before, and it's a blessing you just asked it. That's really the the encouragement of my book is is why wait. You, you know, you're you're you're. Um, you're here to find your own way, to find your own path, to see what lights you up, and you do not need to wait until the end of your life or a crisis in your life or when you retire um, to do that. There's actually nothing in the way of that except ourselves. And we can go out, we have about a minute left, uh, and buy your book and get inspired by that, not for sale, finding in the land of Crazy Horse. 
uh, choosing the he- and we uh, I want to know where we can actually go online to learn more about the book and you. Yeah, exactly. So the uh, the most um, popular place to go is the book's website, which is www.kevindhancock.com. Kevindhancock.com. The book's is for sale on that site. I see and sign all the orders placed on that site, and there's a lot of other content about subjects we've discussed today. The book's also for sale on uh, Amazon and in uh, numerous bookstores, but uh, the website is a great place to go to see it, order it, and learn more. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning, Kevin. Very, very inspiring. Kevin Hancock, Not For Sale Finding Center in the Land of Crazy Horse. Um, we're going to say goodbye, but we have to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Reva Levinson, political communications and strategy expert and author of Choosing the Hero, My Improbable Journey and the Rise of Africa's First Woman President. Just in time for the Democratic National Convention, 
Uh, Riva shares Washington insights into the impact a woman president of the United States might have on political participations of girls and women around the world. Her memoir, Choosing the Hero, tells her personal story covering three decades of travel to the world's conflict zones and how her life intersected with Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, a Nobel laureate who is currently president of Liberia. Uh, you've seen Riva on uh, NPR, C-SPAN, and has written for the Huffington Post. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. It's a pleasure to be here, Catherine. Well, it is timely. You just made it in time for the DNC, so we have uh, lots to talk about. Um, so you're oh, a lobbyist. You're a strategist on international policy issues. And, of course, in your book you're talking about your – it's your memoir about – the first woman president of uh, Liberia. And now, fast forward, here we are, possibly we are going to have the first woman president of the United States of America. So what's the connection? I mean, uh, this is the connection between your experiences with the first woman president of Liberia and now possibly Hillary Clinton as our president. Yes, I've, I found uh, the timing is is great. It's it's lucky because it there are there is a lot of similarities and a lot of shared challenges for President Sirleaf's rise as the first woman to lead an African nation, and now we see Hillary Clinton's quest. And the similarities are really one of uh, tremendous perseverance over great odds over decades, and that's uh, probably the most remarkable coincidence, even though Ellen Johnson Sirleaf comes from one of the um, most challenged countries in the world in terms of uh, poverty, access to electricity, access to water, and Hillary Clinton yields from America, which is the land of plenty, the struggle that these two women go through, the struggle of stereotypes, the struggle of ups and downs and failures, is a remarkably similar and the struggle of perseverance. So that that probably is the most uh, remarkable similarities. All right, so those are kind of the general categories of the similarities. I'd like to take them one by one because you talk about the struggle of stereotypes. I mean, as you say, here we are in the United States. Supposedly, we are a very sophisticated culture, you know, and, and, uh, you know, obviously a powerful country. And yet, why haven't we had a woman president of the United States? Is it because of, uh, well, I'm going to, you answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) Let me, let me take you back to choosing the hero and also to an article that I published yesterday on the Hill, which looks at those two, um, two issues. In, in choosing the, the hero, I, I talk about the unwillingness of a society to believe that a woman could lead a nation when in historical and cultural values the woman has always been behind. But the unique opportunity in Liberia was this was a country that after two and a half decades of conflict realized that maybe a woman could do something different than a man and that only at that time did the country open up. And the irony of uh, President Sirleaf's last campaign, which I talk about in Choosing the Hero, is her signature slogan was, Ellen, she's our man. 
And so you ask me now about the struggle for a woman now to be president or the precedent that Hillary Clinton represents, and I'd say maybe we're just ready for it now. <laughs> maybe maybe the, the space has opened up, and the space has opened up for a woman to emerge. In Africa, I, I believe that even though ambitious women um, are heralded, I, I think deep down they're still more often scorned than celebrated in the political circle. And sometimes in the U.S. It's, it's tough for women to be that aggressive and to be celebrated without having the, um, the stereotypes that come with it. Yeah, it seems to be kind of, and I, I would agree with you, it is kind of this universal, whatever it is, uh, you know, from whatever country or from wherever country one is from, it just seems to be this kind of universal feeling, I guess I would describe it, or culture in all the cultures that women somehow can't lead the country, can't be a leader, can't step into a man's shoes. Well, but the description you gave of, of, um, of Ellen is that the country was falling apart and it was kind of like, well, you know, nothing's gone well so far, so maybe, you know, we're at the bottom of the line here. Well, let's try a woman. That's not exactly the case for Hillary, though. I mean, it's no, not... I, don't, I don't think, Catherine, it was the bottom of the line. I think, yeah. I think what happened in Liberia and the story that I tell is that, that a, a woman who represented hope and the aspirations of the next generation and was able to relate to the struggles of people who had been in the conflict zone, that that was a critical skill, a critical connection to the people of Liberia that got them over what were historical prejudiced. And so I think it was the uniqueness of what a woman brings to office. And with Secretary Clinton, I don't, like you said, I don't think it's a question of, of she's the last one standing. I mean, she is somebody who has been on a mission and on a path her whole life. I mean, one could suggest that this aspiration is inevitable given where she started and the persistency of her mission. Yeah, so it is, Hillary is in a different place than, say, Ellen was. Uh, let's talk about it. I mean, I'm really interested, obviously, because you are the expert and the expert strategist on international policy issues, etc. So I, I'm really interested in what you think and, and why, I mean, if you listen to the, the RNC, the Republican convention, that, I mean, the, the, to me, the, the horrific way in which they tried to disparage her and put her down and, and where that all comes from, that anger and um, the nastiness um, that I, I don't think necessarily if it were a man running for president that that kind of rhetoric would have happened. You know, it's, it's tough to know because the Clintons have such a a brand, you know, that's built over over um, thir- over thirty years. So, but one has to believe one has to believe that the distinction of her as a as a woman has an impact on the conversation. But what I believe, and I think uh, President Bill Clinton said it last evening, and I fully support it is that 
the danger in this election is the toxic nature of the conversation and the the willingness of uh, political strategists to turn their candid- the opposition candidates into caricatures, these one-dimensional people to dehumanize who the person is. And I think that's a real danger. I think that's been done with Hillary Clinton. In many ways, it's been done for uh, Donald Trump as well. And I think America is, is better than that. I, I've seen in Africa, and again in choosing the hero, and maybe why I feel it's so relevant at this time, is I've seen toxic, toxic political dialogue, and I've seen words have tremendous um, impacts on people's lives and led to killing. In Rwanda, it led to genocide. And so the toxic political nature is just really unfortunate, and uh, hopefully we can rise above it. After, after the convention, I wrote an article yesterday, Catherine, in the, um, in the, in the Hill, and yeah. you can take a look at it. One of the things that I said is that whether you agree with Hillary or not, whether you're frustrated with her choices, whether you believe she's made mistakes and miscalculations, one of the things that we should not deny, that no one should deny, is her humanity and the consistency of her struggle because she's been a dedicated public servant for four decades. And that, again, is the concern of the rhetoric. I try to stay a bit out of the political fray and offer opinions that are just relevant to my experience and what I share um, in the book and in my profession. So are you saying, Reva, that, and that if we... Well, you talk about humanity. I mean, if we take a look at that, if we focus on that, those are the things or, that can overcome this toxic, toxicity. I mean, this, this horrendous, you know, um, I guess toxicity of speech in the way we're describing uh, each one of the political plan- candidates. So we want to take a look at the humanity. I would say, well, my bend is particularly with Hillary, but um, so how do we do that? We... Well, hopefully, after the convention, we, we, step, we step back and the American public demands that level of discourse because at the end of the day, the protection of our democracy and our leaders is the American people and demanding the best of their leaders. And so I think the responsibility, Catherine, is also on us. <laughs> it's on the American people. It's on your listeners to demand the best of, uh, of their leaders and to have a debate that's worthy of the, you know, of the most celebrated democracy in the world, the one that exports the values everywhere else. And so, again, I, I am asked often about the strategists and the negative campaigning, but we also have a role to demand better of our, of our leaders. I think you know you use the word debate, and it seems the word we, we aren't debating. The debate is is kind of something that we don't do anymore. We get into name calling. If you don't agree with me, then you're a bad person, and you're even more than that. You're worse than that. And so we don't get into the debate. Um, and sometimes the the real debate never happens, uh, as I see it, particularly among obviously the, the presidential candidates, all of them. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that or not. No, Catherine, I agree with that. It's also why shows like yours are so important. You 
call yourself the social worker with the microphone? <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it's why shows like yours are so important to have that discussion and also to let people know what their responsibilities are. It's not just to, to create anger and frustration in society. It's also to demand solutions from the leaders that we're going to choose. And it would be interesting, too, to see what happens with Bernie Sanders supporters. One of the um, things that I believe, if I may just divert back to my book, if that's okay, Catherine? Absolutely, yes. Is, um, you know, my, my book is uh, called Choosing the Hero. And I, and I picked I pick that, um, I pick that um, title because at, at the end of the day, we're defined by the choices we make the causes and the people we choose to support and the intersections of our lives and the differences that we make. And so choosing the hero is really about the choices that we make in life. And as you said earlier, it tells my story as somebody who spent three decades traveling the world, often in times of conflict, and seeing people not live to fight another day, often fighting for the ideals of democracy. And it was something that I needed to make sense of. And so part of choosing the the hero is my struggle to understand that. But the other part of it is the intersection of my life with Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who I met in 1996 when she was in exile and who would go on to be a Nobel laureate and the first woman elected president of Africa um, as president of the Republic of Liberia. But I don't, Catherine, tell her successes. I tell her failures and her struggle and her doubts and her own miscalculations and what it took for her to ultimately succeed after three top tries through fighting warlords and dictators and even the apathy of the U.S. government. So it's an inspirational story about two people who connect at very different parts in their lives, myself and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, and what, you know, what we're able to do together because taking two individuals and make them, making them so much greater than the sum of their parts. So I wanted to just make sure your viewers or your listeners understood that story, but then pivoting to your question... I feel myself watching the campaign that um, there are two movements going on. There's a Trump movement in the public, and there was a Bernie Sanders movement. But with Bernie Sanders, what I saw, and I'd love your opinion on this, is the, um, the desire of many young people to, to choose a hero, to find somebody to believe in, to see him as pure and his intentions... Um, unshaped by the controversy that we see all, you know, we've seen with the Clintons and for people to want to connect with him and believe in him. I think that he came into politics at a critical time and he filled that need. And so it's not just, I think, the deep social policies that he, um, you know, that he advocated for, but I think what he represents. Um, I think Donald Trump represents something very different. I think Donald Trump has has captured the anger and frustration and disappointment of many. And so I think that those are the two trends that we see in this political cycle. We have millions of people that are captured by Donald Trump because maybe they see him 
as a hero representing their frustrations and anger, and maybe it's a way to soothe that. Again, I see the Bernie Sanders camp as very different. So I wanted to share that with you. Yeah, it's interesting. I see the Bernie Sanders camp, I guess, in a, in a one thing that really surprised me, and I guess obviously I'm not the only one, but I see this you know, 74-year-old man who's just capturing the hope of the youth, the millennials particularly, and I'm not sure, you know, how he did, I mean, he's very positive. He also hasn't been out there in the same way, let's say, that Hillary has. And so she's been under the public or the scrutiny of the public eye for many, many years, more so than he. I mean, he's sort of, he's been there, but I think he's just emerged as the kind of, obviously, the public figure that he is now. So I think perhaps, um, particularly the young people are a little less critical of him because they have a little, there's less information. He has less of a history, as you said. I mean, the Clintons have been around for a long, long time. Um, maybe less to do, his, his message is, I don't want to say less to do with him, but um, because he hasn't been out there and so, so visible, um, he, can, he was able to get a lot more, um, you know, particularly young people, on his bandwagon. Uh, so I think that's part of it. Um, he, I, I, no, yeah. I, I, I agree, too. I mean, he wasn't destroyed and taken down as a person and as an individual through negative attack because most people discounted him. And so he was able to emerge without that baggage and to represent something that obviously people um, latched on to. And so I think, Catherine, that people will be studying this election cycle for decades. And, and, and it's, you know, it's, for, it's fascinating to watch um, as an observer, but at the same time, you know, we're all beyond observers. We're American citizens. We have a responsibility to demand the best discourse and the best of our leaders. So, you know, we have a few months to still do that. I think there's an underlying, and it's still there, I think there has, with the American people, there is always this kind of underlying racism, which I think affected Barack Obama and his presidency, and also this underlying, I keep maybe going back to it, there is an underlying sexism. Um, I know in Michelle's speech, Michelle Obama, she talked about the fact that isn't it great that we can be in a society, in a country now where um, the thought of having a woman as a president for young people is just uh, something that young girls maybe don't even consider as something uh, that is out of the ordinary. I'm not so sure that's true. Um, And I think that, you know, part of what Hillary Clinton is always struggling with or has up until this point is is the the sexism. Of course, we have ageism is another thing, but somehow Bernie doesn't seem to have suffered from that for whatever reason, you know. Um, but he's, got a, he, he's got teeny boppers, you know, <laughs> jumping all over him. He does not suffer from that, but that is the phenomena that we have to understand. There's a reason for that. And the reason is? I, I really myself <laughs> believe, and again, maybe it's because I'm, you know, just spent, more than a decade trying to put a book together about the decisions we make and why we make them. I think people, he he captured people's imagination and people naturally, they want to believe in something bigger than themselves. And I think in some ways, Bernie Sanders was able to, coming into politics at the time, be able to, to 
capture that um, imagination of, of young people because young people are idealistic. And we have to admit, Catherine, that in our society right now, there's not a whole lot of idealism, you know, to, to latch on to. I mean, my own mission, um, it went overseas. The person that I believed in was somebody who was not known to anyone who was in a small African country who I latched on to because I saw this determination in a woman that had nothing on her side and she was seized with what she wanted to do for her people and it captured me. So I'm just trying to relate my own experience nearly you know, two and a half decades ago with what I'm seeing now. Well, what do you think the takeaway will be for young women reading your book and, and, and making to- choices or, and um, how that will affect them when they read Choosing the Hero? Catherine, that's a, that's a great question. I, the book reads a bit like a Tom Clancy novel, so I believe there's, a, <laughs> there's plenty in it for, um, for, for men and, and young men. I start in Mogadishu when the rebels are surrounding the city, and I move from conflict zone to you know, in and out of Washington. I actually even convoy into Baghdad, but you have to read the book to understand why. <laughs> so there's a lot of adventure that can capture a reader's attention, but the spirit of the book is uh, about a young woman who has to make choices in life of working on projects that are assigned and have very little heart or soul and then what it takes to carve a space for yourself and find something to work on that fulfills that ambition of making a contribution. And it's a struggle. It's not just a struggle of career. It's a struggle every single day. And so I think that when President Sirleaf, when we did our book launch at Politics and Prose in Washington in 31 May, and somebody asked President Sirleaf that question, she said maybe it would make people be courageous and take tough decisions and dare to venture out and go on the journey and do the unexpected or unpredictable. So I think that's you know, one of the things I hope that women will take from the book is that it's a, you know, it's a deliberate decision that you make and it's not a decision just what job you take but what you do in that job every day. The other tension in the book for women is um, I was also, um, I am also um, a mom (laughs) and uh, a mom of two. And it's also the struggle of um, having that desire and that ambition and also having the family be your core and wanting to be there for your children. And so the book also shows that struggle as well. And I I think it's the honesty um, that I reveal in the book about myself, and I think it's reflective of, of, of working women and reflective, you know, at this time of a woman like Hillary um, emerging. is just, it's just for women, I think, we internalize things more, and, we, and we, we look at ourselves and we struggle and we debate whether we're doing the right thing every single day. And you, you see that throughout the book. I mean, it's a fun read. It's not, it's not, com- it's not completely self-introspective, um, you know, but you know, that's the core um, conversation. So a long way of saying just you know, pursue your passion 
and know that you're not the only one out there making these struggles. That's just part of, the, part of life. And that's a good word to end on because we have 30 seconds left. And so I want to mention the book again, obviously, Choosing the Hero, My Improbable Journey and the Rise of Africa's First Woman President, Reva Levinson. Just the book, uh, the uh, website we can go to, and then we'll say goodbye. Yeah, thanks, Catherine. You can go to uh, Amazon.com and just punch in Choosing the Hero, and the page will pop up. You can also go to Barnes & Noble as well. So those are the two places to buy the book. And I wanted to uh, thank you for the, the conversation and also the conversation that you have every day with Americans. Thank you. It was great talking to you today. And um, we are going to say goodbye. I am Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.